August 11th, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Polk Runyon. And tonight we discuss two prophetic science fiction stories from the 1950s. C.M. Kornbluth's The Marching Morons and A.E. Van Vought's The Weapon Shops of Isher. Both are considered classics of the genre and deal with controversial social issues. Kornbluth's morons predict a future where the average IQ is 45 and a tiny intelligent elite struggle to preserve the self-destructive swarming masses of subhuman humanity. In A.E. Van Vogt's The Weapon Shops, a group of gun manufacturers and dealers struggle to arm the citizens of a tyrannical and corrupt world government headed by a psychopathic empress, she sleeps with snakes, who is determined to disarm and enslave them. Now, both of these stories deserve to be looked at again in light of present and pending events. So, if you want a glimpse of today and tomorrow as seen by the prophets of yesterday, stay with us and we'll roll back the clock to the 1950s. Oh, boy, these these um, these two... Um, these two stories are, are right now, uh, really, really need to be looked at again. What I'd like to do is, uh, the weapon shops is uh, bigger, longer, and, uh, and, uh, more of a, uh, more involved. So let's, uh, start off with, uh, with CM Cornbluth's, uh, The Marching Morons. Uh, let me mention a little bit about this uh, this story. I uh, when uh, the OTA was founded and the Church of Medic Sciences was founded, this was back in 1969. And uh, my my partner in this venture uh, was a, was a good friend of mine and a very very brilliant uh, fellow by the name of Nelson White. And uh, Nelson was a member of Menzen. And uh, uh, really, a, really a genius and quite a science fiction fan. And uh, he, we, at that time, had a number of science fiction uh, stories that we that we actually, you know, thought that our members ought to be reading and almost as, as instructive material. One of them was The Marching Morons uh, by C.M. Kornbluth. And um, Nelson strongly recommended that. And one of the reasons why he recommended it was is that the basic principle of The Marching Morons uh, is that, as we'll get into when we get into it, uh, is that the mass of people on this planet are becoming less intelligent. The more they breed, the less intelligent they become, the lower the average IQ uh, becomes. And the reason for this is that that intelligent people, uh, intelligent, productive people, 
uh, are not encouraged to have children. In fact, our you know our our our, our society tax the tax structure and the uh, and all the rules and regulations that we have about about business and, and entrepreneurship and everything has 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 just conspired to keep really uh, successful, intelligent, productive people from having large families. And the result is, and then conversely, uh, our society, especially our welfare state, uh, which, you know, applies to America and Western Hemisphere and all the way through Europe, uh, encourages uh, the... Uh, uh, the less fortunate and, and the less uh, uh, productive to have more and more children, and then the result, and the end result of this, of course, uh, is that, that even now we are seeing it even now, and, and we're certainly uh, in, uh, seeing examples of it today that we have uh, we have what you could. <laughs> Almost, almost, just people who are dysfunctional in our society because of a, of a lack of intelligence. And this, this was uh, uh, this condition had had already uh, had already gotten underway uh, back in the 1950s, and well, it would even it was even underway in the 1930s. And and, and by the way, um, these stories. Both uh, the marching morons and uh, the weapon shops were written. Were actually these stories were actually written during during World War II, and they were and they were published. Uh, the, uh, they were published in the last years of the war, and uh, both both uh, the ones we're discussing tonight, the, uh, the marching morons and um, and uh, the weapon shops were both. Published in 1951, so we we can call them, we can really call them uh, 1950s uh, stories. But this this situation with this this population, uh, uh, the expansion of of the um, well, I mean, whether morons is a, is a good term for them or not. Of course, morons be uh, to call to call uh, the ma- the major portion of our our population morons would these this day would be would be would be the epitome of political incorrectness i'm sure we can't we can't call them that let's let's call them intellectually challenged <laughs> i i you know i uh, one of the one of the stories that's kind of like uh, the marching morons is my 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 friend williams uh wrote a screenplay. Ferrarian, by the way, wrote the screenplay for the original RoboCop. And if you recall, in, in the original RoboCop, they 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 were they trying to be very very politically correct, and they were calling prisons institutes for the morally challenged. But anyway, um, uh, this is the this is the problem that that uh, that Cornbluth is dealing with in the marching morons is this population problem. And they call it in the future, they call it the pop probe. In other words, it's the population problem, and they've abbreviated that to pop probe. Um, 
by the way, I, I will say that, that, that of course, Cornblue is a wonderful writer, and, and if you can get a hold of a copy of this story, I've been reprinted in several anthologies, uh, you get a hold of a copy of it, you realize that, that this, this man's a masterful writer and a great satirist because uh, he, he satirizes uh, this future society of, of the marching morons uh, beautifully, and, and we can see the influence of Orwell. And also uh, the influence of a of a film that was made back in the 30s, which we, which I have seen, uh, called Just Imagine, uh, where where a person from our from our age goes into the future and and and, and observes the future uh, from the perspective of today. Uh, it's kind of the old Buck Rogers theme. Remember. Buck Rogers, uh, Buck Rogers goes down into this mine, and and uh, the mine caves in, and this gas puts him in a state of suspended animation. And like Rip Van Winkle, he wakes up in the 25th century. And of course, when Buck Rogers wakes up in the 25th century, he finds out that the Chinese have taken over the and taken over the Western world, and uh, he has to, you know, so <laughs> which they might very well do, uh, sooner than that, too. But anyway, this is kind of the Buck Rogers theme, or uh, there have been many, many science fiction stories like this. H.G. Uh, Wells' time, mach- time Machine is probably one of the great granddaddies of that, going into the future, where the uh, people, or the human race was divided between the, between the, the Morlocks and the alloy, and uh, and the alloy were used as, uh, and, and the Morlocks were cannibals, and they 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 kept the alloy happy and fed on them, um, and, and uh, so anyway, the the way Cornblue works this out is he has a very uh, his story's written now now in 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 the late 1940s. And, and published in 1951 in Galaxy, Galaxy Science Fiction. Uh, now, um, he has a character, Honest John Barlow, a real estate tycoon, a real estate man, uh, in 1988. He's projected him, you know, up to 1988. Well, well, Honest John goes to the dentist and his dentist uh, his experiments with a new uh, with a new anesthetic, which which is just experimental, and and this puts Honest John into suspended animation. This this uh, now this is before the cryogenics movement, you know, which you folks may remember, but but uh, I don't think it has anything to do with it. But anyway, it sounds like high cryogenics. So anyway, uh, John Barlow then becomes a scientific curiosity and they keep him in a tank, you know, and they keep him alive and he's sort of a museum piece, you know. And and uh so eventually he's buried in a vault underground. And then about four hundred years in the future he's dug up and he's dug up by um by a potter by a potter who is trying to, to to use the the metal from his casket, you know, to oxidize his his, uh, his kilns, and and uh, and the potter is a pretty bright individual, and he he figures out uh, he's one of the scientific elite 
of that future civilization. And he uh, figures out how to revive Honest John. So he revives Honest John, and, and Honest John, you know, uh, is, is uh, confronting this, this society, which has gone, you know, really, really crazy. And, and, uh, and yet, <laughs> you can't help the way Cornbooth writes it. Uh, it just sounds like today. They got they, they they got this crazy game show uh, on television called called uh, uh, called Stick It, and 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 uh, and uh, they they as as Honest John is is experiencing this modern world with uh, with uh, streamlined automobiles and and uh, and jet airliners and all this kind of stuff that's very new to him because he's from 88 and supposedly, I guess, uh, in 88 uh, they didn't have jet airliners yet, according to Cornbooth, but they did by, you know, a couple of hundred years after that they did. And uh, anyway, um, uh, Honest John is is really flabbergasted by what he's seeing. And one of the things he's experiencing is his... That the there's chaos all around him. Train wrecks, uh, ocean liners uh, sinking at the dock, and rolling over, and people drowning. And and, and uh, it seems like nobody nobody can nobody knows how to do anything. You know, they have all this technology, and and uh, and all this, this uh, modern machinery, but but there's just chaos, and. He discovers or is discovered by the scientific intellectual elite of this society. They they are very interested in him because they have this problem, this this population problem with this Malthusian situation that they that 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 the vast majority of the people on the whole planet, all 11 billion of them by that time, are the average IQ is 45. And they can't handle, these people just can't handle, uh, they, they can't handle all this, the technology that the elite have built for them and have, and have created for them. They, they, and they're, they're self-destructive. They're, they're, uh, and so, uh, at this particular point, I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get. We're gonna get into the story here, and uh, take it from from Honest John's point of view here. Now, Honest John goes to the racetrack, and and he and he he wants to he wants to bet on the horses. Well, they still have the racetrack, but uh, he discovers that he can't get any any meaningful information on the pedigrees or on the qualifications of any of these horses to bet on. And and as he goes and tries to research these horses so he so he gets some idea of, you know, of how to place his bets, he it, it becomes a completely completely uh useless. And what this is, of course, is uh, an analogy that that, that Cornbluth is presenting here uh, with the horses, that any horse 
any any person who follows the races or, or any person who is interested in in uh in racing animals, whether it's dogs or horses or whatever it is, knows that the genealogy of a horse is 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 largely what you uh, what what the horse is going to do. You can tell what the horse is going to do from from his uh, from the horse's genealogy and from uh, and and this is why you know why in horse racing you have thoroughbreds. And so Cornbluth is using this as an analogy to show us that that uh, this world has completely has completely denied genetics. So he uses the horse race as an analogy. Now, now uh, I'll get into it. Now Barlow looked at the other entries, and it slowly dawned on him that they were all like the five-year-old brown mare. Not a single damn horse running had the slightest trace of class. Somebody sat down beside him and said, that's the story. Barlow whirled to his feet and saw that it was Tinny Pete, his driver. I was in doubts about telling you, said the, said the physicist, but I see that you have some growing suspicions of the truth. Now, please don't get excited. It's all right. I'll tell you. So you've got me, said Barlow. I've got you. Don't pretend. I can put two and two together. You're the secret police. You and the rest of the aristocrats live in luxury on the sweat of these oppressed slaves. You're afraid of me because you have to keep them ignorant. There was a bellow of bright laughter from the physicist that got them blank looks from the other patrons of the lobby. The laughter didn't sound at all sinister. Let's get out of here, said Denny Pete, still chuckling. You couldn't possibly have it more wrong. He engaged Barlow's arm and led him to the street. The actual truth is that the millions of workers live in luxury on the sweat of a handful of aristocrats. I shall probably die before my time of overworked of overwork unless he gave Barlow a speculative look. You may be able to help us. I know that, Gag, sneered Barlow. I made money in my time, and to make money, you have to get people on your side. Go ahead and shoot me if you want to, but you're not going to make a fool out of me. Oh, you nasty little ingrate, snapped the physicist, with a kaleidoscopic change of mood. This damn mess is all your fault, and the fault of people like you. Now come along, and no more of your nonsense. He yanked Barlow into the office building lobby and an elevator that disconcertingly went whoosh loudly as it rose. The real estate man's knees were wobbly. As the physicist pushed him from the elevator down a corridor and into an office, a hawk-faced man rose from a plain chair as the door closed behind them. After an angry look at Barlow, he asked the physicist, Was I called here from the pole to inspect this, this, unget, updandered, I've deprobed and fed quo science, except 
And the physicist soothingly said, Doubt, the hard-faced man. Try, suggested Tinny Pete. Very well, Mr. Barlow. I understand you and your lamented had no children. Well, what of it? This is of it. You were a blind, selfish, stupid ass to tolerate economic and social conditions which penalize childbearing by any, by the prudent and the foresighted. You made us what we are today. And I want you to know that we are far from satisfied. Damn fool rockets, damn fool automobiles, damn fool cities with overhead ramps. And as far as I can see, said Barlow, you're running down the best features of your time. Are you crazy? Well, the rockets aren't rockets. They're turbojets, good old turbojets. But the fancy shell around them. Makes for hard drag. The automobiles have a top speed of 100 kilometers per hour. A kilometer is, if I recall, uh, paleolinguistics, three-fifths of a mile. And pedometers are all rigged accordingly, so drivers will think that they're going 250. The cities are ridiculously expensive and sanitary, wasteful conglomeration of people who would be better off and more productive if they were spread over the countryside. We need the rockets and the trick speedometers and the cities because while you and your kind were being prudent and foresighted and not having children, the migrant workers, slum dwellers, and tenant farmers were shiftlessly and short-sightedly having children, breeding, breeding. My God, how they bred. Wait a minute, objected Barlow. There were lots of people in our crowd who had two and three children. Uh, the attrition of accidents, illnesses, wars, and such took care of that. Your intelligence was bred out. It's gone. Children that should have been born were never, never were. The just average, the all get along majority took over the population. The average IQ is now 45. But that's far in the future. And so are you, grunted the hawk faced man sourly. But who are you people? Just people, real people. Some generations ago, the geneticists realized at last that nobody was going to pay any attention to what they said. So they abandoned words and for deeds. Specifically, they formed and recruited for a closed corporation intended to maintain and improve the breed. We are their descendants, about three million of us. There are five billion of the others, so we are their slaves. During the past couple of years, I've designed a skyscraper, kept Billings Memorial Hospital here in Chicago running, headed off a war with Mexico, and directed traffic at LaGuardia Field in New York. I don't understand. Why don't you just let them all go to hell in their own way? The man grimaced. We tried that once for three months. This sounds like Atlas Shrugged. We hold up at the South Pole and we waited. Didn't notice it. Some drafting room people were missing. Some chief nurses didn't show up. Minor government people on the non-policy level couldn't be located. And it didn't seem to matter. In a week, there was hunger. In two weeks, there was famine and plague. In three weeks, war and anarchy. We called off the experiment. It took us most of the next generation to get things squared away again. 
Oh, but why didn't you let them kill each other off? Five billion corpses mean about 500 million tons of rotting flesh. Marlowe had another idea. Well, why don't you sterilize them? Two and one half billion operations is a lot of operations because they breed continuously. The job could never be done. Oh, I see, like the marching Chinese. Who the devil are they? Oh, it was a paradox in my time. Somebody figured out that if all the Chinese in the world were to line up for a breast, uh, I think it was, and start marching past a given point, they'd never stop because all of the babies that would be born and grow up before they pass the point. That's right. Only instead of a given point, make it the largest conceivable number of operating rooms that we could build and staff. There could never be enough. Say, said Barlow, those movies about babies, was that your propaganda? Oh, it was, but it doesn't seem to mean a thing to them. We've abandoned the idea of attempting propaganda contrary to the biological drive. So if you work with a biological drive, oh, I know none of it is consistent with with uh, with inhibition or fertility. Barlow's face went poker blank. The result of years of careful discipline. You didn't, huh? You're the great brains, and and uh, and you can't think of any. Why well, no? Said the said the physicist innocently. Can you? Well, that depends. I sold ten thousand acres of Siberian tundra through a dummy firm, of course. After the partition of Russia, the buyers thought they were getting improved building lots on the outskirts of Kiev. I'd say there was a lot, uh, uh, that that was a lot tougher than this job. How so, asked the hawk-faced man. Those are normal, suspicious customers, and these are morons, born suckers. You just figure out a con they'll fall for, and they won't know enough uh, to do any smart checking. The physicist and the hawk-faced man had also had training, and they kept themselves from looking with a sudden hope at each other. Well, you seem to have something in mind, said the physicist. Marlowe's poker face went blanker still. Maybe I have. I haven't heard any offer yet. There's the satisfaction of knowing that you've prevented Earth's resources from being plundered, the hawk-faced man pointed out, that the race will soon become extinct. Well, I don't know that, Bardo said bluntly. All I have is your word. And if you really have a method, I don't think any price would be too great the physicist offered. Money, said Barlow, all you want. More than you want, the hawk-faced man uh, corrected. Prestige, added Barlow. Plenty of publicity. My picture and my name in the papers went over TV every day. Statues of me, parks and cities and streets and other things named after me, a whole chapter in the history books. A physicist made a facial sign to the hawk-faced man, and that meant, oh, brother. The hawk-faced man sighed back. Steady, boy. It's not too much to ask, the physicist agreed. Marlowe's sensing a seller's market said, power. Power, the hawk-faced man repeated puzzledly. Your own hydro station or nuclear pile? 
I mean a world dictatorship with me as dictator. Well, now, said the physicist, but the hawk-faced man interrupted. It would take a special emergency act of Congress, but the situation warrants it. I think that can be guaranteed. Could you give us, could you give us some information of your plan, the physicist asked. You ever hear about lemmings? No. Well, they are, or were, I guess, since you haven't heard of them, little animals in Norway. And every few years, they'd swarm to the coast and swim out to sea until they drowned. And I figure on putting some lemming urge into the population. How? I'll save that till I get the right signatures on the deal. The hawk-faced man said, I'd like to work with you on it, Barlow. My name is Ryan Nagana. He put out his hand. Barlow looked closely at the hand and then the man's face. Ryan what? Nagana. Well, that sounds like an African name. It is. My, my, my mother's father was a Watusi. Barlow didn't take his hand. I thought you looked pretty dark. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I don't think I'd be at my best working with you. There must be somebody else just as well qualified, I'm sure. The physicist made a facial sign to Ryan Nagana and uh, that meant, steady yourself, boy. Very well, Ryan Nagana told Barlow. We'll see what arrangement can be made. It's not that I'm prejudiced, you understand. Some of my best friends. <laughs> now, uh, that gives us a pretty good idea uh, at this point. Let's see. Uh And he would, thought Ryan Nagana, alone in the office after Tinny Pete had taken Barlow up to the helicopter stage. And so would would Pope Rob had exhausted every national attempt and the new and a new uh, problem some some of some of Cor- some of Cornbooth's uh, uh, Orwellian uh, combination words here, frankly, throw me. Uh, uh, Poe probe attack lines could have been irrational or sub or subnational. This creature from the past, with his lemming legends and his improved building lots, would be a fountain of precious. Vicious self-interest. Okay, uh, I'm going to briefly summarize the rest of this. What happens is is that um, that honest John, uh, they they go ahead and they humor him, and and let him and make him make him uh, president of the of the world government, and they give him and they give him. Uh, all this power. What uh, the what the, the scheme that that uh, that um, Arshan comes up with is that uh, they're going to sell uh, a large fraction of the population lots, homes on the planet Venus. The first thing they do along this line is to is to convince people that they ought to take vacations on Venus to find out how beautiful Venus is. Well, of course, Venus is, and, and Cornbluth 
knew it at that time. They 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 were aware. That, you know, in, in 1950, we were aware that Venus was was a dust bowl. You know, it was a desert, hot, very hot desert, and uh, uh, and of course, Kornbluth knew that. But uh, the assumption was that people that 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 uh, for the sake of the story, that the people didn't realize that Venus was was totally uninhabitable. And so uh, the idea was was to convince people that Venus was a paradise. And the way they did this was they 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 started um, vacations offering vacations on Venus. And what they did was they put them in spaceships, the people that would sign up for these vacations in Venus, they'd put them in spaceships, and the spaceships would take off, or at least they thought they were spaceships. They'd take off, and they would land, they would land in Hawaii. And, and, uh, and you know, they had, they had a, fake, a fake Venus resort, uh, in Hawaii, where uh, where they convinced these people that they were that they were vacationing in this beautiful tropical paradise, and then when they came home, uh, they they told everybody about it. Of course, and there was all kinds of publicity about it, and then uh, the idea was was to sell was to sell retirement homes and you know and and, and homes in uh, on Venus, and uh, they, they got people all over the world and and, and once once uh it started in the western hemisphere everybody in other the other parts of the world they wanted to go too and and so millions and millions and millions of these people uh that were that were so many of them on welfare and whatever you know were all shipped off uh shipped off to venus and they never made it to venus because uh they they got them. They, they got them out. They got them out in, in in orbit and kicked them out of the ship, and that was the end of them. Well, this this of course uh, um, solved the, the the population problem, and and uh, it was like the lemming situation that uh, uh, that, that Barlow had. But to make it, to make it a good story and to have the irony and the proper irony involved. Uh, just about the time that they gotten they gotten the population ratio really really under control, the last the last guy to get to go to to to, to take his trip to Venus was Barlow himself. He they the his own Secret Service agents grabbed him and put him on the on the ship and out he went and and so he and he uh, and uh, so he served his, his purpose. Now that that is the gist of the marching morons. The thing that, you know, of course, uh, about this story that that is that 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 is really really important is that that it harkens back to a movement that that was very very popular back before World War II, and in fact that the the, the one of the, the film. Just imagine that 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 inspired Cornbluth uh, uh, to do this story uh, was was about uh, eugenics, and people weren't allowed to allowed to marry unless they had the right uh, unless they had the right eugenic uh, uh, coding, and 
and eugenics uh, was was a, a very de- you know going was was a growing thing, and uh, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of sterilization of of, of, of defectives. Uh, people who were considered uh, that, that they, these these people should not uh, not be allowed to reproduce, and and uh, and um, well, that was in the 1930s, and and again, and and the movement still continued even through World War II, even though the uh, World War II and the Nazis, who were very very much into into uh, eugenics. Uh, uh, that ended the eugenics movement. Uh, is, uh, and, and it, uh, the idea of, of forced sterilization of, of mental of mental defectives and and of, of um, um, uh, people who have uh, you know intellectually challenged people people who could not possibly uh, be contributing members of society. Uh, that they, you know, the, uh, the Nazi, uh, the Nazi programs uh, were so horrifying to so many people that, that that ended that. And as you may recall, uh, the Nazis had a. Of course, this didn't apply to women. You know, you don't have sterilized women. All you have to do is sterilize the men. So, the Nazis had a had a uh, had a test. They would they would ask uh, uh, ask a person uh, to make a sentence with the uh, with the words hair hunter field make a sentence with hair hunter field and if you couldn't do it you got sterilized and of course naturally you know we, we you hear that you make well you know the hunter shot the hair in the field. Well, that's simple, but uh, that's what uh, you know. The <laughs> that's what the SS would say. You know, it says, "Well, make us make a sentence with hair on our field." I bet that the 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 oh well oh, yeah yep yeah. well take him take him out. <laughs> that's the end of that. And uh, uh, but uh, after World War Two, this became this whole thing the, the eugenics movement just became an anathema. And and uh, yet we still have the problem, and uh, and and Kornbluth is very much aware of it. And Menza, by the way, as I said, my my friend Nelson was a Menza member. Men, Menza was very much aware of it, and they were very concerned about it. And uh, uh, so, and we have it. We we still have it with us today. And uh, we have we have. Uh, uh you know this the, 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 we we have a political uh, dogma that we that we the political dogma that all men are created equal well they're not and and uh not not physically not intellectually not uh, uh you know uh and and so um yet this for political purposes, it certainly is valid, and yet uh, that has been completely um, uh, the, the, the political re, the, the political aspect of of all men are created equal uh, has 
uh, after World War II, uh, uh, it became almost imposed on science and rationality. Now, this is what Kornbluth is, is trying to deal with here, and he, he's, he's looking at this thing from a Malthusian point of view and predicting this. So what are we going to do about it? Well, uh, we're not back to sterilizing. Anyway, the story is is very, very uh, thought-provoking and, and uh, has a lot of implications today and things that are going on in this country today, uh, and uh, uh, especially in, especially with our criminal population and, and, and uh, one thing or other, it, it, it has a lot of, a lot of uh, present impact. Okay, so that's, um, that's the marching morons. Now, let's move on to the weapon shops of, of, of Isher uh, by A.E. Manvoit. Now, the weapon shops of Isher is another story that is set many hundreds of years in the future. And and uh A. E. Van Vaught, let me say a few things about Van Vaught before we get into this. Um A. E. Van Vaught was Canadian, Canadian writer. And and he was one of the uh one of the uh people that, that uh along with L. Ron Hubbard that started uh that, that started off Dianetics and and uh, eventually Scientology and and uh, A. E. Van Vogt was a, a remarkable writer. The closest writer to him, and I know some people are going to disagree with me on this, but but uh, um, Dean Kuntz once said that nobody writes like like Philip K. Dick, and nobody should even try. I don't agree with that. A.E. Van Vogt and, and Philip K. Dick are very similar in style and and in uh, and in uh, their their the gestalt and the and the and, and the uh, the impact and the uh, emotional intellectual tone of their writing is I think very similar. Van Vogt. Um, Van Vogt was obsessed with mental supermen. Many of his stories, and he didn't, he didn't just just do the weapon shop stories. He also was he was most famous for for a story called Slam. And the, the Slams were were mental uh, mental mutations. Who uh, it was a a, a group of, 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 of mental mutations. Uh, and, and they became they they gathered they 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 found each other and 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 they were a class of people and they were persecuted and uh, these the slam stories um, were so popular back in the fifties that the science fiction fans back back then said fans are slams and that was one of their slogans and so. Uh, the, the, and the slams were persecuted, of course, because they were uh, they had psychic powers, and they were and they were um, um, they were intellectually uh, superior uh, to other human beings. And so uh, then, also uh, along with slam on the weapon shops, then vote also had a series 
of stories based upon what he called no A, non-Aristotelian logic. And this was very influential and and very, very much a part of both uh, Dianetics, Scientology, and and the mindset uh, of the uh, of the psychedelic era. Uh, it it was based to some degree on uh, general semantics, uh Susesi Ayakawa's uh, um, philosophy, uh, and and oh and, and Zen Buddhism. And essentially what the Nulle stories and the Nulle theory was about was non-Aristotelian logic. Non-Aristotelian logic, once you and adopted it, once you, you became a non-Aristotelian thinker and you got your mind set on this, you had certain advantages, mind control advantages and, and, and psychic advantages over Aristotelian thinking. And and uh, thank you, they're very, very, very simple. Uh, there, there are, according to the, that this theory, there is Aristotelian logic and then there is non-Aristotelian logic. Now, Aristotelian logic would say uh, which is what most of us use, and, and, and we is used in everyday life and business and engineering and and, and uh, whatever, and in 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 ordinary life, business life, and and uh, and, uh, and science and and what have you. What it Aristotelian logic essentially says this: every ten ounce red apple equals every other ten ounce red apple. Well, a non-Aristotelian, of course, says no. There's no such thing as just because the apple weighs ten ounces and and has a red has a red skin, that does not mean that it is identical with every other apple that weighs ten ounces and has a red skin. No, there are going to be differences, and 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 obviously, the non-Aristotelians are correct. And but just as obviously, the Aristotelians for purposes of selling apples and for purposes of, of uh, cooking apples or whatever you want to do with apples, the Aristotelians are right. So uh, we have a dichotomy here that that is philosophically and and uh, and in practically and in some practical as, uh, aspects very definitely something that should be considered. And and uh, yeah, as I say, philosophically it is important. And and uh, and scientifically, it's also it also can be important. And um, so he uh, Van Vogt based a series of, of, of short novels on uh, on the Norris series. He had the Players of Nulle, uh the World of Nulle, the Players of Nulle. But the one we're discussing is the Empire of Isher, the the weapon shops, and this was. The weapon shop is actually put together. It's it's what uh, uh, Wikipedia calls a fix-up. Uh, it was it was put together from a series of stories that he wrote during World War II and published in Astounding Science Fiction. Uh, and he, then he then he sort of combined these uh, these stories and he made uh, a couple of a couple of novels out of them. 
the weapon shops of Bisher and, and the weapons makers. And um, to make a long story short, and it is a long story, uh, to make a long story short, what, what it amounts to is, is that several hundred years in the future, um, there's a world government, and not only is it a world government, but, but uh, we, also, we have interplanetary travel, so the planets are being exploited and being mined and whatever, and and being exploited. So it's a it's a it's a solar system government, and it's completely controlled by by the uh, the Isher family, and the Isher family uh, is it's an empire. And uh, at the time of the story, uh, the young woman is the empress. Uh, an elder issue, and she's, she's she's something of a she's something of a psychopath, and and, and uh, um, she is she's the empress, and and the empire is incredibly corrupt, and and of course it has a you know it has a parliament, and it has all of the the all of the trappings of a of a constitutional monarchy, although she has absolute power. Uh, and and uh, uh, the government is 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 incredibly corrupt. Uh, if you want a commission in the army, you pay for it, and and uh, and everybody everybody is uh, is is on the take. And and uh, and large corporations run uh, run everything. And and so it, in a way, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the corporate fascism, which some people say we are in danger of having today. You know, and uh, I'm not going to get into that too much. But but that but according to the the way the way the empire of Isher is, it is a sort of a corporate fascism. But the but the uh, it, it's to the advantage of these corporations to uh, uh, to support the empress. And uh, and they and they indulge her whims, and if she wants somebody's head chopped off, and they offer their heads, they do. Uh, now, opposed to this is an organization that was established a couple thousand years earlier by the same people who established the original Isher dynasty. The, the original empire, they established a corporation referred to as the weapon shops, the weapon makers. And and what these people do is they have they have uh, they make guns, and they make very good guns. I mean, they they're they're not just you know no 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 bullet guns at this point. These are all these are all energy weapons, and uh, uh, they make they make and they and they, they they say we have the finest weapons in the known universe and and, and uh, they have these shops all over the world. They have these they have the weapon shops, and they have a sign in front of every one of the shops that says, "The right to buy weapons is the right to be free," 
and and uh, and then then another little sign that says finest energy weapons in the known universe. Now the weapon shops are really, as I say, they were established. Not to say save people who established the empire, and they were established as a balance. The idea being that if 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 citizens could be armed, then the government would never become a tyranny that the citizens could not resist. That, that, that as long as as long as the citizen has the right to have to have a, a, a to have a weapon for his or a, a personal protection, protect himself and his family defensively, then then they're never you're never going to have an absolute tyranny. That's why the weapon shops were established and established by the same people that established the empire. Now um, and of course, that is one of the deep subplots of the of the books, uh, and you imagine the, the the back and forth play. But even though that weapon shops were, uh, you know, were founded by the same the same people that founded the empire, uh, the royal line, Inelda Inelda Isher, she wants to get rid of them. And she tries every time, and she thinks they're the enemy. And uh, they're really not the enemy. They're the loyal opposition, actually, but, but she wants to get rid of them and uh, wants to wipe them out. But uh, the weapon shops, the interesting thing about them is, is that, that uh, if you don't, if you are objective, if you're, if you're a, you know, like a, uh, you're, you're a gun control freak or something like that, and you, and you want to eliminate them, the doors won't open for you. You go in. You go to visit a weapon shop. You can't get in. The weapon shop. Uh, they have a technology. They can tell if you don't if you don't like them, or if you're uh, if you're uh, an agent of the empire, and uh, you can't open the door. Won't open for you. However, if if you're a free if you're a free citizen and you and you have a genuine desire to purchase a weapon, the door will come will open and you can go in and. And uh, and you can and go out with a with a very with a very fine uh, with a very fine uh, defensive weapon. Now uh, the weapons, of course, and this is Van Vogt because Van Vogt was you know uh, was was you know he was he was what we would call a liberal, obviously, and so uh, his his uh, his guns are all smart guns. In other words, they are not going to you can't they're they're tuned to you. Uh, and uh, and uh, tuned to your your bio index and uh, the, the ring that you wear and the, and the, and you're in your and you're in your bio index and then they can't be used uh, for any uh, uh, criminal purpose. Now, one thing I will say about this is that uh, Van Vogt, along with Hubbard and a lot of people at that time were not aware because they were still under the influence of, of Freud and Adler and, and all. And and they 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 were not aware of of sociopathology. Sociopathology was just not something that they that they that was not in their equation. They you know, they were were in a way thinking that uh, the uh, the idea that all all people are created equal uh 
and that the, the you know the environment was if they turned out bad it was because of environment or upbringing or something like that and of course we know today that that's not true uh so uh if you got a if you got a weapon that's tuned to your to your uh, uh psychological profile uh and uh and the weapon is programmed to allow you to do anything immoral with it <laughs> well that's uh yeah huh that's uh, uh that's okay providing providing uh you have you have morals providing you're an empathetic human being an empathetic human being does not want to hurt or kill especially does not want to kill another human being and this is the truth that that but but if the bird but but a psychopath doesn't care a psychopath doesn't have that empathy has no empathy for other human beings and so consequently uh uh, killing another human being is not a problem. So uh, this is something that, that Van Vogt and, and and most of the writers at that, at that they didn't realize that. And of course, a lot of our liberals today don't realize that either. Is that a sociopath uh, is is a non-empathetic human being. And I I can I know uh, from personal experience that uh, that empathetic human beings, and we found this out in the Army, you know, over and over and over again, empathetic human beings do not naturally claim to kill people. It is, it, 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 it literally has to be trained. And, and uh, you know, the, um, they have to be conditioned. You can't take an, a, a normal empathetic human being, it just, does, just doesn't not just doesn't want to drop the hammer on another human being. It, it, it's unnatural, and and uh, so that that's one of the flaws, of course, in in the whole weapon shop idea. Uh, but regardless of that, the the philosophy is still uh, is still uh, uh, you know uh, very good. I want to read read uh, um, the. Uh, uh, Lucy, the Lucy, the, the sales girl in the weapon shop, is explaining the philosophy here. In the in the and this is in weapon shops of issue of the first book in the series, and uh, so we'll read this because she did she she pretty well describes it. Lucy Rawl smiled and shook her head. You don't understand," she said. The weapon shops were founded more than two thousand years ago by a man who decided that the incessant struggle for power of different groups was insane, and the civil and other wars must stop forever. Time when the world had just emerged from the war in which more than a billion people had died, and he found thousands of people who agreed to follow him. His idea was nothing less than that whatever government was in power should not be overthrown but that an organization would be set up which would have one principal purpose, to ensure that no government ever again obtained complete power over its people. A man who felt himself wrong should be able to go somewhere to buy a defensive gun. You cannot imagine 
What a great forward step that was. Under the old tyrannical governments, it was frequently a capital offense to be found in possession of a gun. Her voice was taking on emotional intensity now. It was clear that she believed what she was saying. She went on earnestly. What gave the founder the idea was the invention of an electronic uh, and atomic system of control which made it possible to build indestructible weapon shops and to manufacture weapons that could only be used for defense. That last ended all possibility of weapon shop guns being used by gangsters and other criminals and, and morally justified the entire enterprise. For defensive purpose, purposes, a weapon shop gun is superior to an ordinary government weapon. It works on mind control and leaps to the hand when wanted, and it provides a defensive screen against other blasters, though not against bullets. But, but since it is so much faster, that isn't important. Um, so anyway, that, that, that was the... That was the original philosophy. There are now in the uh, in the second book, uh, the Weapon Makers. Um, there's a I want a kind of a redo of this uh, of this philosophy, though, uh, the recap of it, uh, which which amplifies it a little more, and uh, and, and I'll find that one. Um, let's see. Now, here it is. Hedrock paid no attention to the interruption. He refused to give up the initiative. He rushed on. It is apparent that you have all forgotten your history or are binding yourselves to the reality. The weapon shops were founded several thousand years ago by a man who decided that the incessant struggle for power of different groups was insane, and that civil and other wars must stop forever. It was a time when the world had just emerged from a war in which more than a billion people had died, and he found thousands of individuals who agreed to follow him to the death. His idea was nothing less than whatever government was in power should not be overthrown, but that organization should, should be set up which would have one principle that no government ever obtained complete power over its people. A man who felt himself wrong should be able to go somewhere to buy a defensive gun. What made this possible was the invention of electronic and atomic systems of control, which made it possible to build indestructible weapon shops and to manufacture weapons that could only be used for defense. That last ended all possibility of weapon shop guns being used by gangsters and criminals and morally justified placing dangerous instruments in the hands of anyone who needed protection. The per at first, people thought the shops were sort of an underground anti-government organization that would itself protect them from harm. But gradually, they realized that the shops did not interfere in issue life. It was up to each individual or group of individuals to save their own lives. The idea was that the individual would learn to stand up for himself 
and that in the long run, the forces which would normally try to enslave him would be restricted by the knowledge that a man or a group could be pressed only so far and so at a great distance was struck between those who govern and those who are governed. It turned out that a further step was necessary, not as a protection against the government, but against rapacious private enterprise. Civilization became so intricate, the average person could not protect himself against the cunning devices of those who competed for his money. Accordingly, a system of weapon shop courts was set up to which people could turn when they felt themselves aggrieved in this fashion. Now, let me say this about that. One thing they have in Europe, in their version of liberalism that we have not adopted in this country and we desperately need is an ombudsman system. And the ombudsman system that they have is if you really feel that you have honestly been cheated and and yet legally you you don't have any 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 official recourse. You can go to some to someone called the ombudsman, and the government and the government supports this, and they can can uh, arbitrate your problem, and they will. We desperately need this now. Now I don't, <laughs> I you know I I, I don't want to want to suggest that any of our any of our. Uh, um, pro-gun organizations would be able to do that, but uh, but along with along with the, the right to uh, to own firearms, uh, we really do uh, need something like what what the weapon shops set up. We and, and, and because the corruption and 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 the corporate power in this country has reached reached a point almost almost like the one described in the in the Empire of Isher. So so that idea of the weapon shops, the court their their court system, we need something like that. Uh and uh along with along with like with you know the, the weapon shops themselves. So anyway this is uh, uh these these uh these two two uh uh stories, the uh the marching morons and uh, and the weapon shops are both both written and published in the 1950s, written uh, during World War II and, and uh, published in the 1950s, very, very pertinent to what's going on these days. And, uh, and so I, I strongly recommend uh, that, that uh, we have a look at them. Now, next week, we'll get back to uh, old-fashioned magic, uh, with with a, with an oldies but goodies, uh, and we'll look into uh, a couple of uh, a couple of, uh, of old. Uh, um, uh, well, one one's an old book, uh, a little book called Zoroaster's Telescope uh, from the French period. Uh, you know the Cagliostro period uh, 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 and. Uh, um, around around the time of the revolution, but uh, uh, and so we'll have a look at Zoroaster's uh, Zoroaster's telescope, 
and we'll then we'll go up into the Victorian period and and have a look at a at a at a wonderful set of of zodiacal cards called Urania's Mirror. And so next week, oldies but goodies. And until then, uh, good magic.